Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be with you. I'm very excited today about today because we get to talk about discipleship. And um, as many of you know, that's my, my passion is discipleship and, and thinking about what discipleship looks for us um, here in the future at Good Shepherd. So I'm very excited that we got this passage in Mark today about taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's a discipleship passage par excellence. Now, I promised to the people who were in Sunday school last week that I did not know that this was coming when we talked about this whole idea of discipleship. It was just seems that the Lord wants us at Good Shepherd to be talking about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. Um, first, let me tell you a story. In 2010, a friend of mine named Rob, a very entrepreneurial man, um, he came to me and he said, Cameron, I'm going to open, this was in Michigan where I lived, he said, I'm going to open a, I'm going to open a crepe restaurant down, d- downtown. You know, those little French pancakes. I'm going to open a crepe restaurant that's going to have a nice coffee bar in it. And he said, I know that you kind of are familiar with coffee, so would you spearhead the coffee department at, at the restaurant when we open it? And I said, Sure, I'm a college student. I could use a job and um, so on and so forth. And we were talking. We decided we needed to go to Coffee Fest in Seattle, Washington, because that is where you learned about all the latest and greatest products and coffee and the processes for making espresso. And I said, Rob, that sounds great, but you have to pay for it all because I don't have any money. I'm a poor college student. And he said, yeah, yeah, of course. And so we got on a plane and went to Seattle for the weekend. And what I learned about my friend Rob was that when Rob went to a new city, he wanted to see everything and do everything uh, that, that could possibly be done in that city within the course of a weekend. And so what did I do the entire weekend? I chased Rob around so that I would not get separated from him because he was my resource. He was my life resource. He had all the money. He was going to pay for the hotel room. He was going to pay for my dinner that night. He was going to pay for my drinks that night. He, he, he was the guy I had to stick close to. So I stayed on his heels and followed him around the city. Um, this is actually a very important concept when we think about discipleship, because what we find as ultimate will be what we follow. What we see as ultimate will be what we follow. And for me that weekend, Rob was ultimate because he was the source of my life and sustenance for the weekend. Now, I want to just say a word about disciple, the word disciple or the concept of discipleship. Um, a lot of uh, people think like Jesus invented that. Um, actually, that's not the case. Jesus didn't invent discipleship. Uh, when Jesus, uh, the world that Jesus was born into, um, discipleship was a thing, but here's how it worked. Um, largely, it involved um, philosophical teachers and pupils or adherents who, who attached themselves to particular philosophers because they felt they were the wisest and, and they were worth following around and listening to their teachings and applying them to life. So that was what discipleship was in the ancient world. You, you've attached yourself to whoever was the wisest teacher, followed them around the city, listened to them, and tried to apply their teachings to your life. Now, Jesus didn't invent discipleship, but his discipleship is unique. For two major reasons. One, Jesus chooses his own disciples. They don't choose him. He says to his disciples in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You see, Jesus calls us to be his followers. We don't, we don't, we don't look at a religious buffet and pick Jesus off of it and decide we're going to follow him. He's already done a work in our hearts to bring us to himself. And the second thing is that Jesus' followers will come to worship him and act reserved solely for God and his people. Now, what does Jesus do? He chooses a handful of smelly fishermen and IRS agents and tax collectors, and he begins to change the world forever through 
disciples. So as I said, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8 today. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, we're going to, there's three really major sections here. Um, and they all, there's three major topics in each of the sections. And they go like this. The first is Jesus's identity. Um, the second is Jesus's mission. And the third is Jesus's call on his followers' lives. Jesus's identity, his mission, and his call on his followers' lives. So follow along. In the very beginning of the passage, Jesus is standing around with the boys and he says, who are they? What are they saying, boys? What are they saying about me? And he says, who do they say that I am, right? Not, not do they like me? Do they think I'm nice? Do they think I'm teaching cool stuff? Like, who do they say that I am? What's my identity according to people? And the disciples say, well, some think you're John the Baptist and some think that you're Elijah, come back to earth. And some think you're just kind of another prophet. See, that, that's our world's view of Jesus, right? He's, he's a good teacher. He's prophetic. He's nice. He's humble. He's wise. He's loving. But see, Jesus is accustomed from the very beginning of his ministry to getting demoted to the status of special prophet or wise teacher or humanitarian. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? See, Jesus wants to know if his disciples are picking up on the reality of who's standing in their midst right? And Peter's confession is spot on. He says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one who is to come and to restore God's people, Israel. And yet Peter profoundly misunderstands the Messiah's true identity, which takes us to the next section. It says, then he began to teach them. You see, Jesus saw that he was going to need to do some teaching because he knew that their understanding of Messiah um, was not what the actual mission of Messiah was going to be because he wasn't going to plot an underground assassination attempt on the emperor of Rome. Right? He wasn't going to start a violent revolution or or build a new temple for the, the people of Israel. Instead, he says... I'm going to undergo great suffering and rejection and be killed. And and Peter doesn't like all this, this nonsense. This is very uncomfortable stuff, Jesus, and he doesn't like all this suffering nonsense. And so he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? Clearly, Peter does not yet know who he's talking to, right? He doesn't get it fully yet. And, 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 P, and Jesus says to Peter, this strange thing, get behind me, Satan. Now, why does he say that? Because Jesus perceives that the evil one is actually working through an unwitting disciple, trying to tempt him away from the mission that God has given him, right? Just like he was trying to tempt him in the wilderness away from it. He's continuing to try to pull Jesus away from his, his destiny towards the cross, See, the devil is always trying to convince us there's an easier and more comfortable way than the way of Jesus. He's always trying to convince us of that. But Jesus is the suffering servant. That's what he's teaching his disciples. We just heard um, from Isaiah up here just a minute ago. And let me let me remind you of part of what he said. This is written 600 years before Jesus was ever around, okay? And Isaiah said, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. See, early Christians, they read that and they saw the fullness of meaning of that passage in their crucified Lord. So Jesus says to Peter, he says, you're not, you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. See, sometimes 
what, what we'll find is that the missional thing to do or the, the Jesus way of things to do doesn't make any sense from a human perspective. It could be um, surrendering a personal preference or opinion for the sake of someone else. It could be reaching out to someone who's different from you, completely different from you, age, culturally, racially, socially. Um, it could be making a financial sacrifice that will stretch you, right? It could be any of those things. It could be, it could be going to church even when you're tired, <laughs> right? For some of us, that's a, a sacrifice that sometimes we have to make. Um, but from a divine point of view, God sustains and provides miraculously. For people who make sacrifices and take risks for his mission in the world. The first conversation I ever had with our, with our great bishop, Greg, he said to me, he said something to me, I'll remember till the day I die. He said, Cameron, God is on the side of the risk takers. God is on the side of the risk takers. And we see this all throughout scripture. And, and we see it in Jesus, right? Because he takes the ultimate risk of risking his own life and giving it for the salvation of the world. God is on the side of the risk takers. Now that takes us to the third section, which is Jesus' call on his followers' lives. Jesus' call. The word Mark uses here in verse 34, he says, he called the crowd with his disciples. The word there in the Greek for called is actually a very strong word that is used when someone is saying, what I'm about to say is very important. Move in close and listen to this. You don't want to miss this. It's essential, right? And now notice who he calls. The disciples the inner 12, the inner circle, and the crowd, right? This is an important detail that Mark gives us because he's telling us what Jesus is about to teach is for everyone. It's for everyone, right? See, discipleship is not just for clergy or for spiritual masters or for people who have theology degrees. Discipleship is for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says this himself. He says, if any want to become my followers... Anyone, right? Anyone. Here's what they have to do. And he says three, three big things in the beginning of this passage. They must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Let's look at those three in turn briefly. A deny yourself, again, is a very strong term, and it means something along the lines of to surrender one's interests and destiny. To surrender one's interests and destiny. See, what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be my disciple, you actually have to lay down your, your personal ambitions at my feet and let me, let me do with your life as I see fit. Now, does that sound oppressive? Well, it would be if Jesus had anything less than perfect and pure motives for his followers. But he doesn't because he knows actually what's best for us. He made us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what kind of fuel we need to put into our tank to run effectively. Does it sound arrogant? Well, only if he's not the God of the universe who can make those kind of demands on people's lives. See, Jesus is saying, I made you. I love you. I loved you with my own life. And, and only I know what's best for you. You have to trust me. See, the, the world says, trust your own heart, right? We, the big idea is self-actualization, right? You, you, you have to grow up and be whoever you want to be and pursue your own dreams and at, at whatever cost, and you need to determine who you're going to be. And Jesus says, no, you need to deny yourself and lay everything down and put it in my hands and let, let me do with your life as I need to do with it. 
See, we, we're in, in the habit, especially in the Western world, of kind of determining, we, we press kids as soon as they get in middle school and high school to start determining what their lives are going to look like. And we kind of, we, we plan our lives out and we determine exactly what they're, what they're going to look like. And then what we do sometimes is we Christians, we, we slide Jesus in where we have some extra room for him. I call this ready whip Jesus. Um, because we kind of get, we get our whole life before us and we, we build it up and we think what we're going to do and then we, we just put a little bit of Jesus on top. But really what that is, it's just putting Jesus on the bottom. That's just putting Jesus on the bottom to do that. There were a lot of crowds um, who were interested in Jesus and the Gospels, but they liked ready whip Jesus, right? The, the crowd that he multiplied the bread for continued to follow him. And they said, show us a sign, show us another sign. And he said, you're following me around because I gave you some bread for your tummy. See, they weren't interested in making him Lord of their lives. They were interested in simply what he could do for them. Now, if you say, I understand Christianity, I understand that Jesus died, died for my sins, and I, and I, I think someday I'd like to get a little bit more serious about it, um, but, but, but I'm not ready to put Jesus at the center of my life. If you say that, then you really don't understand Christianity. That's what Jesus is saying here. For, for, for him, it's all or nothing. There, there, there's no half disciples of Jesus or half followers of Jesus. Jesus says you have to lay it all down and trust me. Now, denying yourself is not like a, an active pursuit of suffering, okay? This is a mistake that some people, you see the old monks who used to whip themselves with the, with the uh, flagellum. That, that is not what Jesus is talking about. Now, he's not asking us to harm ourselves or actively seek suffering. Denying yourself is simply always putting God and others first. Always putting God and others first. So here for some denying yourself could look like this. It could be I'm um, staying up with a with a sick screaming baby all night so your spouse can get some rest. Uh, dads, we're, we're, we're very bad at this. We're very bad at making this sacrifice. Um, or it could be denying yourself could be celebrating your coworkers promotion when you when you know in your heart that you deserved it more. Right. Uh, denying yourself could be, here's one, it could be as simple as this. You know when you're in the grocery store and you see the other guy coming with a cart full of groceries and you start to pick up your pace a little bit because you see there's only one cashier and, and, and you want to get there first. Denying yourself can, can be making a practice of doing things like saying, please, you go first, right? It starts simple and applies to every area of life. I have to say to you, church, I am, I'm so encouraged, especially over the last few weeks, um, for people who have been denying themselves and stepping into places where, where we need bodies and we need, we need people and we need hearts to step in and, and take care of our children's ministries and, and things like that and people stepping in to do movie nights and, and in every, in every way there are people stepping up and denying themselves even though it might not be their area of expertise or their heart's desire to serve. We've got people filling all of these places where we need volunteers and so I'm so encouraged courage and i thank god for the increase of faith and love that i see here at good shepherd um may your tribe increase may your tribe increase now um jesus then goes on and he says you must take up your cross you must take up your cross now we 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 often um think of that as a metaphor right well he must be speaking metaphorically but actually he's not he's really speaking about death now remember he's speaking to a crowd of people and to a group of disciples, many of whom will end up hanging on Roman crosses along the highway because they chose to put their allegiance in Jesus. You see, he's talking about literal death. Now, um, 
What, what, what taking up your cross means is that you will not let anything take away your allegiance from Jesus, even the threat of death. You will not let anything take away your allegiance from Jesus, even the threat of death. There was a, a bishop in the second century, so way back the year, like 150, right around there. His name was Polycarp. It's a great name. I don't know if anyone's naming their kids Polycarp anymore, but he was the bishop of Smyrna. Not, that was not New Smyrna Beach, okay, it was, it's some, it's in modern day Turkey now. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, and he was placed before the authorities in Rome, and he was told to burn incense to the Roman Emperor. That's what you had to do to, to, to say that the Emperor is Lord. And he said, they said, burn incense to the Emperor and, and renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. Polycarp was a very old man. He'd been a bishop for a long time. And he said this, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And they drove a spear into him and burned him at the stake. See, what a beautiful example of allegiance to Jesus. Now, most of us won't face martyrdom. And, and we can be very, very thankful for that, right? We can be thankful for the freedom that we have to worship in this country. But you see, we American Christians, we're embarrassed to pray over our food in public, right? We're embarrassed about what people people will think if we mention the name of Jesus in public. Now, I have to tell you, this is really a confession because I see this in, in my own heart, the difficulty with this. Uh, last Sunday afternoon, I went to the grocery store to pick something up and the, the checkout clerk, she said, hey, did you do anything interesting this weekend? And I could have said, yeah, I'm a pastor, so I went to church and I worshiped the Lord and received communion and it was amazing. You know what I said? No, nothing really. I didn't really do anything interesting. See, what if, what if cross-bearing started with letting go of our pride, our fear of what people would think of us, and openly speaking about the goodness of the Lord Jesus? What might, what might God do through such risk takers? What, what might become of mundane conversations with, with the store clerk or the barista or the waiter at a restaurant? Thomas Kelly, who's a Quaker Christian writing in the early 20th century, he said this, it's beautiful. He said, only now and then comes a man or a woman who is willing to be utterly obedient, to go the other half, to follow God's faintest whisper. But when such a commitment comes in a human life, God breaks through. Miracles are wrought. World-renewing divine forces are released. History changes. Don't underestimate how God will use a bold and faithful act. I just heard a pastor telling his story about how he came to know Jesus. He was sitting in college in the cafeteria chomping on a Whopper. And um, this very unenthusiastic young man came over to him and sat down with him. And he said, uh, I guess I'm supposed to talk to you about these four spiritual laws. And, and he said, okay, I just listened. And he said, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Um, but you're a sinner and you need to be reconciled to God. But Jesus came and died for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God and have eternal life with him. Would you like to make Jesus your Lord and Savior? And he said, yeah, actually, that sounds wonderful. See, no enthusiasm, no training. It wasn't an evangelist. Don't underestimate how God will use a bold act of faith to bring people to himself. Now then, finally, Jesus says, you must follow me, right? That, that's important. Not, not, not you must follow a particular moral code or you must follow a particular thing. You must follow me. You must follow me. I'm a person. I'm a, I give my spirit to be with you. You must follow me to be a disciple. 
See, sometimes we think about um, following Jesus with like, well, I was baptized and I made Jesus my savior at camp when I was uh, 16, so I'm following him. Just because you've been baptized and at some point uh, professed Jesus as Lord doesn't necessarily mean you're following him every day of your life right now, right? Following Jesus is a daily active pursuit, seeking him in his word, seeking him in prayer, seeking his will for our lives. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I call these smelling salt teachings, right? They are strong. They are difficult. They wake us up out of a sleep and challenge us to refix our eyes on Jesus. Now, so it begs the question, how is it all possible? And maybe at this point you're thinking, man, I, 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 you're getting jazzed and you're thinking, I gotta get, I gotta get fired up. I gotta do more. I gotta work harder to be a disciple of Jesus. Let me say, just let go of that for a minute. Just let go of that. Take a deep breath and let go of that. Let me, let me, let me, let me read something from, to you from, um, Thomas Chalmers. He was an old Scottish preacher and he had a, a wonderful sermon. We don't hear sermon titles like this anymore, but it was called the expulsive power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. Here's what he says. Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Here's what he's saying. We don't leave one way of life behind and attach ourselves to another by a mere act of will. He says it just doesn't happen. Here's what he goes on. He goes on and he says that what we actually need is what he calls a new affection. We need something that is more beautiful more attractive, more lovely than what we're currently attached to. Then he goes on and he says this. He says, it's only when we're admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the only way that deliverance is possible. See, when our affection and love for Jesus, what, what he gave for us is he took, up, took our sin upon the cross. When that becomes the ruling affection of our heart, it's only then that we'll be able to follow him faithfully. See, when we're melted by the, by the beauty of Jesus, by the beauty of his cross, by, by the beauty of him taking the heat for us so that we could be made children of God, our hearts will be inclined to give everything and to be his disciples and follow him. We will make him ultimate and we will follow him everywhere. Now, discipleship, when Jesus um, talks about discipleship, it sounds very, very difficult and very challenging. And it is. It is. It's a call to, to forsake everything and follow him. But here's something important to remember. Discipleship, is friendship. Discipleship is friendship. Say that with me. Discipleship is friendship. It's friendship with Jesus. It's intimate friendship with Jesus. Now remember, the same Jesus who calls us to make, to sacrifice everything, to lay our lives at our feet is the same Jesus who says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. You see, he calls us to deny ourselves and, and to suffer for his sake. But Jesus comforts us and he promises his presence along the way. St. John of the Cross, a monk, a monk in the 16th century, a Carmelite monk who, who wrote a beautiful book called um, The Dark Night of the Soul, 
And he said this about following Jesus. He said, I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven. And the name of that river was suffering. And I saw a boat which carries souls across the river. And the name of that boat was love. How do we become faithful disciples of Jesus? We make him ultimate. We see him as the most beautiful and lovely thing that we can fix our eyes and our souls on. See, you have to see his sacrificial death is for you as an individual, that he loved you and his name is, your name is on the palm of his hands. You have to see that. And as that reality grabs our hearts more and more, our feet will be compelled to walk the path that he himself has tread. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, you are merciful. And it is by your grace that you you uphold us and you call us into a better way of life, Lord. You call, call us and show us that if you gain the whole world, it will be nothing if you lose your life. And so you call us to give our lives to you so that we can gain everything. We thank you for your promise. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of resurrection, which reminds us that death is not the ultimate threat and so that we can freely give our lives to you because of the promise of eternal life with you. Sustain us along the way, we pray. And show us, Lord, your beauty and your loving kindness so that we may make you ultimate and follow you in all things. In your name we pray. Amen.